welcome back to Self-Care with Dr. Sarah. Today, our guest on the podcast is Dr. Nicole Cabrera-Salazar. Dr. Cabrera-Salazar recently earned her PhD in astronomy, and she's currently doing consulting work. I hope she'll tell us a little bit about that on this episode. She's also a member of the um, Committee on the Status of Minorities in Astronomy for the American Astronomical Society. One of the reasons why I wanted so badly to have Dr. Cabrera-Salazar on the podcast in particular this week is because I sat in on a workshop that she did for students here at the Banneker Aslan Institute uh, at Harvard University, and we'll link more to that institute so you can read about it if you like. It's an institute here at Harvard for young astronomers of color to um, learn a lot of the skills associated with research and also a lot of social justice concepts um, if they haven't been exposed to them before. To that end, Nicole's workshop uh, was called Self-Care as an Act of Resistance. And I hope, Nicole, um, could you start by telling us a little bit about that workshop and what inspired you to create it? Absolutely. Thank you for having me here <laughs> again. Um, so I, I really have to give credit to the people whom, whom I learned from this year about this concept of self-care as, um, as an act of resistance or as an act of political warfare, as Audre Lorde has said. Um, and so uh, Dr. Goldie Mohammed, who's the executive director of, urban, of the Urban Literacy Clinic at Georgia State University, put together a workshop that I attended this year. I think it was in in March or April, and it was called Radical Self-Care in Academia. Um, and so it was for students who were in PhD programs at Georgia State University, and she had two powerful speakers attend, one of whom is Arash Danishade. I, I really think I'm butchering his name, but um, he does restorative justice um, for incarcerated youth, and he's a director of programs at the Hip Hop Chess Federation and also a lecturer at the University of San Francisco. He was a very, very powerful speaker. And also Yolanda Steely Ruiz, um, who is an assistant professor at Teachers College in Columbia University, and she does research on Black and Latino male students, uh, critical English education, and racial literacy in urban teacher education. So she has, you know, a wonderful body of work. And um, these two speakers, really taught me like everything that I wanted to impart in my students. So I really have to give credit to them yeah. and everything that I learned there. So coming from this workshop was really, really life-changing for me because it helped me reframe self-care as something that was not only, you know, uh, something that I needed to do, but also something that I needed to see as an act of resistance and claiming space uh, in an academic environment where a lot of the times um, marginalized people are given this message that they don't belong in those spaces and that they, you know, are generally just like not good enough to be in those spaces. They're not the people writing the rules uh, or the policies in those spaces um, and they're often ostracized. So this workshop just like gave me all these different ideas and tools and I'll be referencing, you know, those ideas for the workshop. I've heard... I think really valid criticism of a lot of uh, ways that we typically define, like for example, imposter syndrome, because we often frame it as like a very personal struggle when in fact those kinds of thoughts are perhaps a very rational response to a culture that is providing you with constant messaging that you are incapable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's really valid. A lot of the solutions, like you're saying, some of which uh, you proposed, or at least amelioration strategies that you proposed, can be things that individuals can do. Mm -hmm. But indeed, this is all taking place within a context in which performing self-care, caring for oneself, being present at all, mm -hmm. can be an act of resistance, like you mm -hmm. said. 
Yeah. And um, I just wanted to mention that this workshop was part of um, a tradition that I hope to start at the Banneker Aslan Institute this year called Thrive Week, where we took really two weeks and we were concentrating more on the students' well-being because while they do wow. learn about social, social justice, um, a lot of it is sort of theoretical, academic discussions, it's externalized, and the students, you know, relate their own personal experiences um, with these concepts, uh, such as immigration, mass incarceration, but they aren't, maybe not necessarily making the connection between what they've already experienced uh, as racialized mm. um, or what they might experience and probably will experience when they get to the point of being in graduate school because mm. these students are undergrads where they will be more isolated in those spaces. So the idea was to bring them a series of empowerment workshops so that not only, you know, are they learning about social justice, which can be really disheartening and just very um, heavy, 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 but that they also learn tools to overcome these things um, and to also not just uh, survive in these spaces, but really thrive. Um, and one of the videos that I was shown in this um, workshop uh, by Arash and Yolanda was, I thought, just such a powerful statement, and I showed it to, to our students as well. And uh, it's a video from Black Girl Dangerous, and um, it talks about, you know, when communities of color talk about surviving in, you know, our society, uh, but we don't, we don't know what we're surviving for, you know, if we're not, if we're not surviving to be happy, then what is it that we're really doing? Right. Um, and I, I recently noticed there's an Instagram account. I wish I could remember the name, but it's a woman who has taken, you know, old photographs and videos and kind of created an archive, um, and an account to sort of showcase images of, uh, basically Chicanos in the U S and because all these images that we get of communities of color are like, you know, they're impoverished, they are miserable, they are, you know, marginalized, they're incarcerated, all these different things. And we have, have all these negative messages, but we don't see uh, images of these people really thriving. I mean, in these spaces where they weren't meant to survive at all. Um, so this woman has collected, you know, photos and videos of Chicano communities at you know, barbecues and dance parties and, you know, with their families and their communities. And that really made an impact on me because it's like, you know, we're teaching our communities, like you have to survive, but then what is, what is that for that in the yeah. end? Yeah. yeah. So, um, so I that thought it was really, of, um, melanin and bicycles. Do you know about that Instagram? No. It's like all just <laughs> images of, um, black girls being carefree and like riding their bikes. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. a very good Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. And I just really, I think these images are really powerful and it's really important because a lot of times what we're told in these academic spaces and especially in the sciences, I feel, um, is that um, we have become successful. We're in these spaces in spite of our experiences, but really the messages know that we're in these spaces or at this level of education or success because of our background and our experiences, yeah. because of our traditions and everything that our communities have passed down to us. So the idea was to um, to have this series of workshops, one of which was this self-care as an active resistance workshop, to really empower the students to start reframing some of these conversations that have been framed for them, a narrative that has been given to them rather than, the, than they writing their own narratives. 
One of the images in your workshop that I thought was especially powerful and that you yourself might have said was your favorite Mm -hmm. um, was an image that you invited the students to try to describe. Mm -hmm. Um, It ended up Mm -hmm. being an image of a university. Yes. Um, But I feel like that the way that you introduce that image and the story about it really um, typify the Mm -hmm. message you are trying to communicate to the students about the very idea of a place of learning, the mm-hmm. very idea of like how to accrue knowledge. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the image and yeah. we can link to it? Absolutely. And that was um, something that the the radical self-care workshop that I went to, that image was shown to us by Arash. And it was so powerful and moving. I really felt that I needed to share this with the students because it was an, an image of a courtyard. And, um, you know, when I was in this workshop, he asked, what is what does this look like? You know, what is this image of? And um, I thought, oh, you know, it looks like a mosque. It looks like maybe a, other people said a place of worship or maybe like, I don't know, they had other ideas. And what he ended up telling us was, you know, this is the oldest university in the world. It's the University of al Karawin in Morocco. And it was started by a black woman whose name is Fatima Alfiri. And so when I learned that, it just blew my mind because the narrative that we're told is that institutions, higher institutions of of learning, they are created by white people and they're created for white people. And when we're in the spaces, we're the ones who don't belong. When actually um, this is an idea that a black woman had and created in, you know, way before this was in the idea, you know, in white people's minds. But then it was sort of appropriated, stolen, and then sold back to communities of color as places of whiteness. Um, And so I think it's really powerful to say, no, like, these are the contributions of people before us. And uh, one of the things that was mentioned in that workshop was like, you know, the pyramids of Giza. And I think you you can also uh, talk about the pyramids in Latin America, um, which were built by the Mayas and the Incas um, and the Aztecs. Um, And these are like, you know, people who are in my ancestry and and just kind of talking about these these really amazing structures that have withstood thousands of years and are still here. You know what I mean? And it's a really good analogy for us, too, like you know, communities of color, people of color, we're still here. We were never meant to survive. And yet look at all the things that we're contributing and creating. And so it's really turning that narrative on its head and really owning like this is our space. You know, we deserve to be here. We have the right to be here and reclaiming that space as our own. I um, remember when I had a result about measuring the size of a planet um, and I wanted to speak about it in talks and colloquia. I got very curious about who first measured the size of the earth um, Mm -hmm. with any degree of certainty. And I talked about that in some of my talks for a while. It was the Persian scholar Al-Biruni who measured the size of the earth with the precision to which we had measured the size of this exoplanet. And in looking up the original texts, I was just stunned at how, by how many years they preceded the same type of discovery in what we would call the Western world. Mm -hmm. And even by saying that, it was it, it felt uh, different than a usual talk in which um, oftentimes people talk about science and maybe it's a very white way of talking about science mm-hmm. as being like extremely individualistic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that you achieve, you do it by yourself. You're not actually supposed to need others. You're not necessarily mm-hmm. supposed to remember the history. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seemed like a lot of what you were proposing to these students was actually that community is an intrinsic part of science. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's also an intrinsic part of science because... 
in part, it defines the students who will be the next generation of scientists. Mm -hmm. It empowers them and equips mm -hmm. them to survive. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we've, we had been having these conversations with students, and one of the conversations we had is like around identity and we had a long discussion about what it meant to be a scientist and who can claim that word, and even astronomer or astrophysicist, and why it was that none of us in the room felt like we can claim that. And I, you know, I have a PhD in astronomy, and it's still very hard for me to identify as an astronomer, especially considering that I'm no longer doing research and I'm doing different kind of work. And so, but we had to unpack that, you know, who writes those rules? Who gets to decide who can call themselves a scientist? And basically who are the gatekeepers and why is it that you know it's so hard for us to claim this identity and i reminded them that you know our ancestors had astronomy like structures that where they they did astronomy pacific islanders knew astronomy really really well i think um there was someone who mentioned that like it was a um, a nation in africa i believe or a, a people who had discovered serious a, B, and C before there were ever telescopes. And so just trying to get them to connect, you know, our people have done and been scientists before Westerners came and said, we're going to teach you these things and erased their histories and erased their scientific contributions and taught them, quote unquote, things that they didn't understand. And um, I mean, it was a very um, much colonialist view of yeah. like, our, we are bringing you knowledge and we yeah. are helping you when really we have this knowledge and we created this knowledge and, and we've been surviving and thriving and creating our own spaces and redefining, you know, our culture for thousands of years, you know, before Westerners ever found us. Yeah. One of the things I really liked about the workshop, even though I liked all of it, <laughs> was when um, you were individually asking students um, about the things that they did uh, to care for themselves. And then you had a, a style of asking them uh, questions after the fact. So let's say a student really liked to play music or mm -hmm. a student really liked to laugh. You would say, like, when's the last time you've done that? Mm -hmm. It wasn't only big ideas that you were presenting to these students, you were also asking very specifically on a personal level, yeah. what are the things that you do? Why haven't you been doing that? Mm -hmm. And it was part of a style that I really liked that I think you brought to several aspects of the workshop, which was, um, I guess, what's like a Socratic style, mm -hmm. where um, it's sort of very, it's designed to sort of lead the person to the answer rather than telling them the answer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, why haven't you been doing that? Or where do you think that idea came from mm -hmm. of what science looks like? Yeah. Where do you think? And, and Nicole was even using it on me tonight over dinner to like create effect. <laughs> um, and it, it really is uh, quite, it's good. Like it's really worthwhile because it really got me thinking like, why do I think that? Where is that like tired old idea from? Yeah. It like dusted it off from some like closet where I got it. Like who knows how it even got there. Yeah. And I thought it would be a useful strategy, like not only in a workshop context, that's useful when one is by oneself too. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of conversations that I had, even one-on-one -on -one with students um, or in a group setting, um, you know, we were asking ourselves these difficult questions. And in the self-care workshop, the question was, um, what brings you joy? Because the idea what is... What brings you joy, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So in this Black Girl Dangerous video, um, the woman was saying that the cure 
for exhaustion isn't rest, it's wholeheartedness. So we were exploring this idea of like self-care, not just being like doing something to rest, but also something that brings you joy, that we need joy in our communities. And that is an act of resistance in itself because we're not meant to have joy, right? We were, the way the script was written, you know, we're supposed to be miserable. But when we have joy, that it, that can be really powerful and it can really... Yeah, it can really subvert these narratives that we're being told about ourselves and it helps us rewrite those narratives. So I was asking, you know, what what, what brings you joy? Uh, and a lot of the students were saying, you know, I haven't done this in three months or a yeah. month or I didn't do it. I, I just did it last week. But then before that, it wasn't until January before the semester started that I was really able to do this. And so I asked why. And um, most people said, you know, it's because I didn't have time. And so I just started asking questions about, you know, where does that idea come from that you that you don't have time for yourself, this idea that you are not worthy of that time. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'll give an example, a personal example. So for me, um, I've been I have a lot of anxiety and depression. And one of the things one of the ways in which my anxiety has manifested after my dissertation has been done and like all the stressors have been removed and you would think it would just go away by itself, but it doesn't work that way apparently. Mm -hmm. But one of the ways in which it's been manifesting is in extreme tension. Um, so if you can imagine just like all of the muscles in your neck and head and face, like your jaw muscles, all of the little muscles that control these different movements, even muscles that you don't even realize that you had, if you can imagine all of those muscles being constantly tensed and contracting, and you're not able to control. It sounds very painful. Yeah, it's it is. It's very painful. You know, I my husband gave me a, a massage for my birthday recently, mm -hmm. and the masseuse was extremely effective. Um, and I was I had never been able to get a massage and actually relax. She told me, you know, they have a subscription. You could come back once a month because she said you really need to work on this. It's a yeah. practice. This relaxation, like you've really learned to be anxious all the time and to work around the clock and you need to learn how to relax right and she said you know it's okay like because I was like crying at that point yeah. <laughs> but she said you know it's okay like it's like a growth mindset thing you you can get better like mm -hmm. you can you can learn how to relax and my immediate thought was like you know it's a hundred dollars a month like I can't afford that I can't do that um there's no way yeah. and then I unpacked it in therapy a little bit and it was like I am in a privileged position right now because my husband is working and it is something that I can afford. And I had to ask myself, you know, if this were for someone else, you know, if this were for a family member, would I even hesitate? And the answer is no, I would never hesitate. I would just be like, yeah. we'll work it out. We'll figure it out. We'll, you know, we'll rework our budget or whatever yeah. it has to be. Yeah. But for some reason, because it was for me, I just didn't have the space to do that. And when you really unpack that, I mean, it is like you are not worthy of that investment. You're not worthy of that time, right? Um, and so I really had to think about that and, and was finally able to be like, okay, I am worthy of this just as much as anyone else would be. Mm. And I really need to, I need to do this at this point. It's like, I have a loss of quality of life because of it and it needs to happen. And so, you know, but that was something that took me, it was a very long process for me to get to that point. And so I was trying to stress to the students that like, there are all these messages that tell us that we are not worthy of anything. We're not worthy of someone else's time. 
we're not worthy of, you know, the investment, quote unquote, that people are making in us for being in these programs and sending us to conferences and stuff like that. And we have to live up to some expectations to be worthy of that. And we have to somehow earn this worthiness, um, which is a very capitalistic idea, right? And a moving goalpost. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so as I struggle with that myself and I told my students, you know, I'm right here, like yeah. <laughs> I'm basically the, everything that I'm telling you, I'm telling to myself because I still struggle with this. But yeah, the idea is to completely reframe that as like to subvert these narratives and just say like, I am worthy of self-care. I am worthy of taking breaks during the day. I'm worthy of not taking my work home at night. I'm worthy of doing things that bring me joy. Right. And one of the things that I talked about in the workshop that I attended, this radical self-care workshop is, you know, I, I think of self-care sometimes as like a way to do the work, you know, the social justice work mm. that um, that we each have to do and a responsibility to do. And so I think like if I don't take care of myself, then I'm going to be too exhausted to do this work. And something that Arash asked me in this um, workshop was like, how about self-care? just for you, like just because, right? Just not in service of anything, not in service of anything, even the work, you yeah. know, as we call it, like, it's just, just because you deserve that. And like other people wouldn't even, it wouldn't even cross their mind to question that as like a selfish act. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Doing that is just like a really way to like, it's a way to subvert these ideas that have been ingrained in us for so long. Yeah. I feel like that's um, very hard to unlearn. Mm -hmm. I would say, is there anything in particular that you've been doing recently? You know, I mean, you take <laughs> examples. Um, I feel like I always like to hear what you uh, do. Like in the workshop, for example, you uh, alluded to an artist, right? Or you showed some of her art yes. that was like simple self-care or something? What was it yeah, called? Yeah, boring self-care. Boring self-care. Yeah. Boring self-care. And it was like, um, especially for folks struggling with mental illness, mm -hmm. then... Um, self-care can be congratulating oneself or being very warm and loving toward oneself because you took a shower that day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, really simple stuff. Yeah, so the, her um, Instagram account is called at Make Daisy Chains. Um, and she does this series of drawings of these little cartoons called Boring Self-Care. And you can look her up on Instagram. But basically, yeah, she does, she does these drawings and they can be things like, I took my medication the way it was prescribed. You know, I got up out of bed today one of my favorite ones was I wore day clothes during the day and night clothes at night. And if you've ever had, you know, serious depression or anxiety, you might relate to that because sometimes you can't get out of bed or you wear, you know, or you go to sleep with the clothes that you were in during the day. And um, so, yeah, sometimes self-care isn't something huge, like going and getting a massage that not a lot of people have access to, you know. Um, it's doing these, uh, acknowledging and taking taking the time to, you know, congratulate yourself and to be compassionate with yourself and say, you know what? I put on pants today. <laughs> yeah, you know, it. right. I like, I went outside today. I responded to a text message that I was afraid to respond to or that I was avoiding. And so there, um, I really love this series because it really humanizes this experience, like uh, of taking care of yourself, that it doesn't have to be these big leaps. It can really be like, I'm taking these very small steps and, but you know what? I'm progressing. And one of the things that, one of the workshops that we did, it was our first one. It was a, um, a lesson or sort of 
immersement of the um, the Zapatista principles. And the Zapatistas are this um, anarchist group in uh, Chiapas, Mexico, and they operate completely independently of the Mexican government. And the their uh, strategy was to um, negate the strategies of other liberation movements that had turned into dictatorships, like in Cuba, Chile, and Peru. And so they don't have a vertical power structure. There isn't anyone in charge. Their leadership rotates um, regularly. And it is a very, very community-centered and community-based. And a lot of their principles can be applicable you know, to us. And it's something that I feel like these indigenous people created for themselves. And, and it's just, and actually, I just learned this, you know, conducting that workshop, co-conducting it with uh, Jorge Moreno. And it's that, you know, that rally cry, no justice, no peace. Um, it comes from Emilio Zapata, who was the leader of this Zapatista movement. And it was his saying that he said, if there is no justice for the people, let there be no peace for the government, um, which is really awesome, you know. And um, so we were teaching these these different principles. And one of them is lento pero avanzo, which means slowly, but I advance. So even these small steps that we are taking uh, to take care of ourselves should really be celebrated and seen as an act of resistance and seen as something, you know, that you're doing to to help yourself and to love yourself. Because we're taught to hate ourselves, you know, to hate our bodies, our skin, our hair, our eye color, <laughs> all of these different things. And so this sends a very powerful message. And I tell my students, you know, um, if they're 20, you know, they've had 20 years to be indoctrinated with these ideas about their bodies themselves and the way they interact with the world and their role and their place in the world. Um, so it's going to be a process to unlearn that and to rewrite that script in your mind. And so we have to do this in small steps and we have to see that we are advancing, even if we're advancing slowly. Yeah, I really liked that uh, emphasis on process mm -hmm. rather than result. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the principles, not only in self-care, for example, um, at the Banneker Aslan Institute, but also in the research. Mm -hmm. It's sort of um, also a novel way of knitting together self-care as necessarily scientific. Yeah. You know, or like the same principles that you bring to bear in caring for yourself are necessarily scientific principles, like the fact that things take place slowly, if at all. Mm -hmm. You know, that progress takes place slowly. That's true scientifically, too. Mm -hmm. um, I put in my thesis um, a haiku by the Japanese poet Isa, that was, um, oh, snail, climb Mount Fuji, but slowly, slowly. You know? <laughs> and I feel that way about self-care a lot. Yeah. <laughs> slowly, slowly. Yeah, it's definitely a process. And yeah. a lot of the things, so I, I also taught uh, my students um, a quote-unquote productivity workshop, which I really reframed as like a workflow workshop because this idea of producing. productivity yeah. and producing is definitely a capitalist ideal. We don't, we try not to perpetuate these structures, right? Uh, in teaching them about workflow and then also about, like we did a financial literacy workshop and, and all these different things that they don't have access to. One of the things I was um, really trying to impart in them was that none of these strategies or tools will work unless you have self-compassion. And self-compassion is also a practice and something that you have to have a growth mindset about. So a lot of days, like, I mean, I will, I do this myself and it's like, I'll wake up and, you know, I won't get out of bed for an hour because I'm on my phone because, you know, I took a sleeping pill the night before and I was groggy and like, mm -hmm. so I go on my phone to kind of like wake myself up. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell myself, oh, you know, I should have been, I should have just gotten up and taken a shower and that would have woken me up and that would have been better for me. Mm. So it's like, I didn't take care of myself. So I'm a bad familiar. person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, 
yeah, this idea of like, we beat ourselves up even for the things that is like, is supposed to be nourishing for us. I was trying, I was really trying to impart this idea that, uh, know that the, the way to subvert that is really like self-compassion and just telling ourselves, you know what, like this didn't get done today and that's okay. And I can try again tomorrow and not like, oh, I didn't do this big self-care thing, but you know what? I took my medication today. I went to class, even though I felt really depressed in the morning. And that's a huge step. And just like thinking about all of the ways in which we really do nourish ourselves and celebrating that because we don't like, you know, we don't take the time. Like for me, as soon as I defended my PhD, it was like, yeah, but now I don't have a job. And so like I immediately went to the next thing, like moving on to the next thing and not stopping and saying, wow, I accomplished something that no one in my family has ever been able to do um, or even had access to, you know, and that is something that like, maybe I should take a break, <laughs> you know, maybe I should stop and, and, and really reflect on that and all of the things that had to happen for me to get there and overcome so many things, you know? So I really was trying to drive that point home because it's really about, it's not just about taking care of ourselves and the end, you know, period. It's really about fostering the self-love that we are not taught to do. In fact, we're taught to hate ourselves. And so that is like a key, it's a key component to that. That um, gets reflected, I think, in the very white academic culture. Mm. Uh, I'm thinking of one example in particular, which is like, almost being proud of how little sleep you got oh, yeah. or like being yeah. proud of like how late you worked. Mm -hmm. um, and in contrast saying like, Oh, I actually feel really good. I spent all weekend and I didn't check my email one mm. time. Like oh, that yeah. would, that would not, I think be received positively. I think it would be received with kind of like, I don't know, like a major side eye. Yeah. You know, it, it just wouldn't, I, I don't even think people would be like, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I feel like it would be received like really negatively, even yeah. that very basic, like, Oh, I actually took a break this weekend and it felt yeah. really good. Yeah. Basically never. People would be like, does not compute. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Error for a yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. And that's so real. I mean, like I finished my revisions for my dissertation in January and then I got married and like, I was like planning my wedding as I was writing my dissertation last year. And that was, you know, and as soon as I finished defending, I went right back into wedding planning, getting married, you know, not surprisingly, I came back and I was like sick for three weeks because yeah, I hadn't right. rested ever. But then as soon as that, and I felt guilty during that time, that three week period where I had the flu really, really bad and I couldn't get out of bed and I felt guilty for not working because I was like, I should be job searching right now. I had to force myself like, because I don't like that. I never endorsed that. And in the last six months of my, uh, of graduate school, I really had to employ this like, you know, 12 hour workday, working around the clock, working on weekends. My husband was holding it down, you know, like cooking all of our meals, cleaning, doing everything so that I could come home and just eat the dinner he had made and then go right back to work. And that is a habit that I developed. And I ideologically, I'm like, this is not okay. And I don't want to perpetuate this. But realistically, it was very, very hard to unlearn. So at first, like I had to force myself not to work on the weekends, but I would become very depressed because I didn't have anything to do. And I wouldn't make plans, fun plans, because you know, my husband would ask me, what do you want to do this weekend? And I would be like, oh, I guess I can apply for this job. Like we can go to a coffee shop and work. Yeah. And I, it got to the point where I was like, okay, I have to force myself not to do this. But then I was looking forward to Mondays because then I could, I could finally like work again, mm. which is so fucked up, you know, like, 
And that's not me. That's capitalism. You know what I'm saying? Like that's, that's not an idea that originated in my mind or that it was an idea that was there before I was born. I learned that. My therapist, one time I told her, you know, I've been unemployed for five months. And she said, why do you feel like you're unemployed? Like, why is that the framing of this conversation? And I was like, because I just finished grad school and I don't have a job. And she was like, you need a break, <laughs> you know, like you need a solid break from yeah. all of that because that was a lot. It, it took a physical toll on you, you know, and an emotional and mental toll as well. And so, yeah, it took a long time of forcing myself not to work on weekends. Um, and honestly took a change in medication as well to get to the point where I was okay with yeah. that and no longer like looking forward to a Monday where I could actually do work. Um, so that's been a huge process for me too. I guess I'm familiar with that kind of false relief. I guess I would call it like you were saying like, oh, it's Monday. I can finally get back to work. Mm -hmm. It's not, um, I don't experience it as like real relief and rest. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's just a relief that comes with returning to the known script. Yeah. So like being off script in a lot of ways is like deeply uncomfortable, mm -hmm. even if it's the right thing to do and it takes practice. Yeah. You know, and so that like feeling of like, oh, thank goodness, like I'm finally back at work. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's more like, oh, thank goodness I'm like back on this script of what it means to be successful. Yeah. It is uncomfortable, yeah. you know, to remove oneself from the script. But as you're talking about, like deeply rewarding. Yeah. You know, and actually in the long term, a really great decision, yeah. a great scientific decision, mm -hmm. because it's an investment in your long term ability to contribute. Yeah. yeah. And absolutely. I mean, this is like it's, it's definitely a capitalist idea. It doesn't come from communities of color traditionally, right? So this is very much, it goes all the way back to individualism, pulling yourself up by mm. your bootstraps, mm. becoming independently successful. Mm. All of those ideas come stem from capitalism. Mm. And in communities of color, family and community is extremely important. And so one of the ideas that I had, I didn't get to enact, but I, I, I'm hoping the students will be able to do this after I leave, is that communities of color tend to center a lot of interaction and ideas around food. And so I found out about this great nonprofit in Oakland that was like a community kitchen. And the idea that they have is like people of color have these, these traditions around food um, where they pass down, you know, values um, and have all of these connections with family and, and, and friends and community. But that a lot of uh, communities of color live in areas that are food deserts, for example. They don't have access to a grocery store, which is in turn like disenfranchising because then they can't buy the groceries or the food that they can use to make their traditional meals. Um, and so it's disempowering. Um, it strips them of their identity. It makes us not, you know, lose those traditions over time. Um, and this is definitely, it's by design, you know what I mean? Having access to, to those things. And so this community kitchen, what they do is they have, I think it's monthly or weekly. They have, they just have a space, um, where people can come and make meals together and share community, you know? And so I thought, wow, what a great way to incorporate that into the self-care of our students. Maybe have a cooking class, quote yeah. unquote, where we bring recipes from our cultures and we... Um, we teach each other how to make our, you know, traditional meals and we talk about where these traditions come from and, and maybe talk a little bit about our histories because we aren't taught those in school. And so that can be very empowering. And so the point of all of these things is to 
bring us back to our roots and really ground us in those ideas and perspectives and know that we have a history, our ancestors have contributed to society and we can walk in that truth and take our, our own bodies as safe spaces that we can bring into these white spaces and academic spaces. This is something that Arash too is also mentioning in his workshop is that, and he does research on this and he talks about like this idea of needing affirmation from white institutions or like waiting for them to give us a safe space where we could, you know, congregate and, and discuss and, and be able to be in community with each other. And the point is that we don't need that, you know, we can be a safe space within ourselves and we can foster self-love and self-care and bring that into a space and not lose our identity by having to assimilate to that culture. And that's something that happened to me, you know, like I, I came into, I didn't even realize that it was happening, but I came into this academic space. Uh, I remember moving to um, Atlanta from Miami and I would be in a bar as an undergrad and my friends would tell me you're being too loud. You know, people would tell me that I can't, I, you know, I try to kiss people on the cheek and people would be like, no, you can't do that here. Or like, I'm very touchy and that's, that's part of my culture. When I'm talking to people, I'm constantly touching them. And, you know, people got the wrong idea, especially men, other men got the wrong idea. And so like, I quickly learned like, it's not okay to be like this in this space. Not and okay I, to be like myself. exactly. Yeah. It's not okay to be myself and I have to assimilate. And, and then that persisted in graduate school where it was a primarily white space. I can't speak Spanglish because no one will understand me. So I quickly learned that that, you know, that wasn't possible, but it's a high price to pay. Um, being stripped of your identity like that and just having to follow someone else's culture and protocol and etiquette we were talking the other day about how being on time is a white construct right because like um you know island peoples and like other cultures like it's not something that is valued and jorge moreno was talking about how like um in mexico people aren't on time unless it's really needed if you if you really need someone to be there like you're sick or something they will be there you know what i'm saying so even you know questioning those values and like of being on time for example it's kind of like you know, it's just one aspect of this whole institution, but going through it and then looking back and realizing, wow, I lost so much of myself. What a high price to pay. And it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it because I could, if I had known about these tools, about self-care, I, if I could have empowered myself with this knowledge, then I would have been able to be freely myself, bring it through and, and, and stay my whole self throughout academia and throughout um, the graduate school process. It sounds like you're really being the person you most wanted to see. Yeah. You know, or yeah. you're being the person that you wish that you had borne witness to. Yeah. Saying the things you would have most needed to hear. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the students here, like, they give me so much life and they give me so much hope for the future because I can I, I can get very cynical, you know, working in these spaces and just seeing the amounts of injustice that are happening. But when I see these students and just how socially conscious they are at such a young age and um, just how brilliant they are, they really just, they, it gives me joy to work with them. Are you um, available uh, to do this workshop other places? Absolutely. Yeah. So I actually, I just got a request to, to do this workshop um, at Columbia University and, and I would be very willing to because I, I think... I really want to work with marginalized students. I think, you know, that's my calling. Like, it's like you said, like, 
you know, working with the students is, is kind of closing a loop for me. I get to like almost travel back in time to the person that I was yep. when I needed someone like me. And it, yeah. it, it's, it's a healing process for me. I get healing Great. from that, you know? Um, so yeah, I love working with students and mentoring students. And um, that's definitely something that I'm open to. How should people get in touch with you? You have a website, right? Yes, I do. Um, and it's www.nicole.com. Cab, C-A-B. There's tons of information on there and there's a speaker request form, you know, if people want to, to bring me out to their institution. We'll make sure we link to it too um, on the website um, for this episode. Thank you so much for being on the podcast for the third time, Dr. <laughs> Nicole cabrera Salazar. At this point, I think we can call you a podcast all-star. Um, <laughs> friend of the podcast, Nicole cabrera Salazar. That's what I'll call you when you're famous. Um, so uh, thank you again for being on the show. and um, thank, thank you for you. having me. And thank you, listeners. And um, if you're interested in previous episodes, Episodes, or you're interested in any of the resources we talk about today, um, this podcast is on Twitter and on Tumblr. So our username on Twitter is Doctors Sarah Care, so plural Doctors D R S S A R A H Care, and that's our um, address on Tumblr as well. It really helps us a lot if you uh, rate our podcast or even leave us a message, um, positive or negative, um, on iTunes. We really appreciate that, and I can't tell you how much. Sarah R and I love getting messages. Um, we, t- <laughs> we both tend to respond to them and Sarah R especially, uh, responds like within minutes. I'm not kidding. Um, it like really makes both of our day. Uh, so thank you again for listening. And, um, this has been self-care with Dr. Sarah. Mm-hmm.